Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Matthew F. Fisher was born in 1976 in Boston, Massachusetts, and received his BFA from Columbus College of Art and Design in 1998. He followed that by getting his MFA from Virginia Commonwealth University in 2000. He's been a recipient of residencies and awards from the Paula Krasner Foundation, Yaddow, Saratoga Springs, New York, and the New York Foundation of the Arts, amongst others. Recent solo exhibitions include Into the Blue at Johansson Projects in Oakland, California, and group shows include Pro Forma, Context and Meaning and Abstraction curated by Dr. Vittorio Calazzi, and Work Release in Norfolk, Virginia. Matthew stopped by while in town from LA for his two-person show at Shrine Gallery on the Lower East Side with Casey Cook, and we spoke about coming up with titles for work, sports radio, New York vs. LA, and much more. Here's our conversation. Yeah, what are the what are the titles coming from? Like, how do you come up with that? I <clears throat> they come up from I found I had these books I found on the street. One of them was a single volume encyclopedia mm-hmm. from like 1982, published in London. So it had a very British vibe to it, of course. And so as I worked on the paintings, often if something reminded me of something else from the painting, if I was reminded of you, for instance, Brian mm-hmm. Alfred, I would go to the encyclopedia and I'd look up your last name and I would find somebody else that had a similar name and then I would kind of look through that and then at best, you would find a author or a scientist that published a book in the 15th century and it was a very interesting title. Yeah. And then you just kind of read about it to make sure that isn't anything radically inappropriate and... Uh, <laughs> And you go with it. And then for me, I love having sometimes the most over-the-top uh, flamboyant titles I can imagine for the most simplest of imagery. Yeah. So it's kind of a juxtaposition between those two. And uh, and then more than once, there's been amazing coincidence. Like I was working on a piece from, uh, I think like 2013 or something, but my friend Annie Silverstein, she was making movies that all were five letters that started with the letter S. Uh, and so I went to the encyclopedia, looked up her last name, Silverstein. And at that time, I was kind of had this vision of what a, what a poet's graveyard would be. Mm-hmm. So I found this guy, Jose Silva, who was a South American poet who committed suicide when a boat carrying his manuscripts went down in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, I believe. Crazy. And in Sil- uh, Silva is a five letter word oh yeah and it just like kind of was like this it like, made sense what? yeah 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 so that's where it's kind of fun because uh, that you know those books would take me on that journey which I could never you can never do with the internet as we just proved that you just type in one thing and you you end up at a very finite right <laughs> video of only 198 views before we clicked <laughs> on it and uh, but with these books it was almost the other way it's like you would go in with one idea and it would open up to whole nother um world yeah and so. you kind of like the the 
free associations that yes, can be brought to it. It was somewhat free associations, but it was like, you know, chance, chance, yeah. I guess is the word. So, But um, if it didn't fully relate, you wouldn't have picked, or not fully relate, but if it didn't lock in with something you were going for. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not a, if it works, it works. Yeah. And then you run with that. And if it doesn't work, you, you think some more. Titles are interesting. Yeah, they, they're a pain in the ass. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if titling for, because when musicians title songs, it's always interesting, especially when it's instrumental, you know, because it adds like a to- I wonder if it's the difference between abstraction and representation, too, that there's a total different approach to titling or there can be. Right. I mean, if you're an abstract painter, that title could be the only quote unquote tangible thing that leads into the to the meaning behind the piece. Um, and as for me, I'm not sure what's your relationship to titles. Uh, it depends. Yeah. It depends on the group of, of work. Like that, the show from that catalog I gave you was titled Future Shock, so it was about, kind of related to the Toffler book, and then Herbie Hancock and kind of like futurism, but technology and where those meet. So what I did was, accidentally, kind of like what you're talking about, is I looked, I was reading the book, and the chapter titles are amazing. And when it came to titling, I thought, oh, Maybe that would work. So I tried to link them up and the subject matter of the paintings, there were enough titles there that were great that it would somewhat match and uh-huh. like add this kind of element to it. But other times I'll just I'll just say like like that one's crop circle. I mean it's pretty self explanatory. That's also fun too when you give it a title that's so poignant and obvious that it does not open the door to any more readings than what it already is right it's like no it's just this yeah i think i've done there's one in there called just like wave yeah (laughs) (laughs) which could be the title to a lot of them but yeah yeah. just like on this one you're just getting wave wave. (laughs) so let's like rewind the clock to all the way back to when you grew up when i grew up um i was born in boston my father taught uh, at the schools over there. Yeah. And then when he got a full-time teaching job, we relocated to Minneapolis and then Michigan. Oh, right. Wait, and you're moving to these places, moving to these places. How yeah. old were you? Uh, three, I was moved. I moved to Michigan, uh, Minnesota. So from three to 10, I was in Minneapolis, uh, which was a, my parents were East coast and I think they really appreciated Minneapolis for its huge Norwegian population. My mom's uh, Norwegian herself, mm-hmm. so she kind of clicked into some of the arts and crafts that were happening there and the food. Uh, and then I moved from a very urban situation to a very rural situation in Michigan, southwest Michigan, below Kalamazoo. And so from 90 or 85 to 94, I was there. And what that meant was a lot of time by myself running yeah. around the woods playing in the river there was a junk yard thing forgotten next plot over from us cemetery so uh you know my mom would just kind of open the door and i would go out and just you know i had no friend no <laughs> didn't have any friends but nobody lived near me you yeah. know because it was kind of the town was 10 15 minute drive away and mom wasn't going to drive me so i fished a lot and you know had my chores i did but for the most part i just kind of occupied myself uh, in my mental space uh, and so when it's time for school, I have the deepest respect for my parents because they encouraged me to apply to only art schools. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, which was a nice, refreshing 
Well, because in high school you were that was pretty much the only thing yeah that was what you were into that was it wasn't wasn't the math it wasn't the uh, sports for sure so i kind of excelled and then they gave me classes up at the art institute in kalamazoo uh where i really developed my sense of composition because there was a lot of black and white photography the old school where you would walk around with the 35 millimeter camera you to kind of develop that square in your mind and you took the picture and you went to the dark room developed it and so I kind of had my relationship to imagery shaped by that, how I kind of process pictorial space. And, you know, because of photography, it's flat. So it kind of, you kind of take everything and you flatten it in your mind before you take this, the picture because you only had 36 shots. And, you know, if you're lucky, you had two good ones from that. So you try not to waste uh, that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so then when I, you know, applied, you know, it was time for college. So I sent everything out and, uh, you know, it was the usual Art Institute of Chicago um, museum school in Boston where I was from uh, but then one small school in Columbus Ohio gave me the most money and that just seemed to make the most sense to go there so I ended up down in Columbus College of Art and Design in Columbus Ohio is it called CCAD or is there a shortened name for it CCAD CCAD yeah CCAD CCAD I don't know I've never heard any <laughs> um, I just I'm not familiar with the school so I just it's there's been some nice uh, people come out of it. Uh, yeah. Inka Essenheim mm-hmm. is probably the godmother, um, but then more recently there's been like uh, Samuel T. Adams, and you know it's it's a very the we were the last class to be addressed by the founder, this guy named Mr. Kazani, who was a student of Joseph Alberts. Nice. So the first year, and I've heard this has changed uh, since then, was extraordinarily fundamental. A lot. I mean, I, we had to take a class called lettering, where you, the goal was to make a hand-drawn printout, basically. Yeah. It had to look like it came out of a printer. So you learned about spacing and pica, how to slant it. and you Design know. was not um, divorced from the education. No. Did he learn from Albers at Black Mountain? I, I think he learned from him over overseas i'm not quite sure i can look into it i mean he was by the time we got there he was 99 years old and you know basically yelled at us for 45 minutes (laughs) and and orientation you know and then everybody was like that was the last time anybody will hear from him (laughs) you know and then his sculptures were uh, like a 14 foot tall perfect stainless steel circle yeah that was it that's what i was i was just picturing like you know a rectangle it was going to be one of the (laughs) And that was, you're just like, oh, right. okay. Purity of formal form. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, so that was instituted in, uh, in the foundations there. Yeah. 2D, 3D, um, color concept, all those things were what you had to take, you know, as long as, you know, anatomy drawing and basic painting. And were there any faculty there that you really kind of clicked with? There, you know, there was. And, uh, unfortunately, he died too young. This guy named Ron Agudis, who was kind of, um, Little demon corn ash, you know, demon corn cast yeah. a long shadow over over the faculty. There was two schools, kind of like his side, which was a minority, and then everybody wanted to do the uh, photorealistic paintings um, of still lifes, which was another teacher. Yeah, and so you you either fell kind of in one camp or the other. I was in the sloppy figure or uh, you know building abstraction type thing side, so. Yeah, but then at some point I fell in love with folk art, ironically, because Columbus is a beautiful town for that. Um, 
there's uh, William Hawkins, Elijah Pierce, two of the great folk masters, mm-hmm. uh, just great artists of the 20th century were there. So I was looking a lot at the Chicago school, the Harry Who, the False Image, Roger Brown in particular, which is evident in the work today. Um, He's great. Yeah. You, you know, remember the moment when you first see Roger Brown, you're like, oh, wow, you could do that? Dude, it was... <laughs> the work that I'm making now, I feel it was the undergraduate thesis show I tried to make but failed miserably. You had to put the time in yeah, to get exactly. to it? Yeah, I mean, about you know, 15 years to kind of come full circle back to landscape, abstract the landscape and the relationship between viewer and, and, you know, I mean, mine aren't as political as his. Right. But, you know, I, I feel a great gratitude of debt to him for what he did. Yeah, there's a sensibility. Right. Thanks. But it. what's nice is that it didn't, now that you mention it, it makes sense, but it didn't jump out at me like, oh, someone's been looking at RB. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> you know I what mean, I mean? Yeah, that's, I think that's the sign of a good, uh, you know. Influence, a, a, a but not. Processed, yeah, processed yeah. through, you know, right, not, right. not just lifting something that you like and making a painting out of it, but rather taking the time to kind of digest it. Did you have that thing in school where you were conscious of, like if it's the Harry Who, you know, you're really conscious of your influences because you're, since you're not, you haven't worked through it yet, you really, they kind of present themselves in the work and you feel like, am I going to be able to get to my voice here? And you realize it just takes a long time to get to it, right? I think, and I agree with you, and you, and you, you justify it by saying like, oh, I'm, I'm using a different material than them. So it's right, not, right. I'm, I'm, you know, no, no, that's not what you're thinking. Um, and, and, and I felt like, you know, I learned best by just doing. Yeah. Like not sitting around discussing it, but rather, you know, I wanted to make a, an Elijah Pierce sculpture. So I just got a piece of wood and whittled out a cat, you know, and I would show up to these critiques with this, you know, tchotchka and people are like what the, how do we talk about this and you're like I, you know is it art no it's student art it's, it's me processing through things that i was interested in and and i went right from undergrad to grad school straight through um which was a blessing and a curse in many ways because i did not fully appreciate the time that grad school allowed me to make work but i also got that out of my way and yeah. you know i became educated around the year 2000 um and I, I had the same attitude in grad school where I just took things that I artists whose work I was interested in and try to make the work, recreate the work, I guess, yeah. not fully understanding it. And it culminated in a mix of Donald Batchelor, Larry Pittman, Carol Walker, uh, Carl Austin Darp, this horrible blend. <laughs> And uh, I had this thesis show in 2000 that once I came to New York, I came to New York like a month later, I realized it was all just a waste. (laughs) It was, I was like, I was a post Carl Austin Dart painter, which is, you're dead. You know, like (laughs) Carl took it, took it to such a beautiful end and he keeps going that I really feel like you can't go any further down that road. Yeah. He like nailed that, just that lane. And then to try to, you know, carpool with him it was so I, I as soon as I came uh, to the city in 2000 the summer of 2000 I uh, just threw all that stuff away and started over again just kind of reprocessing things that I was seeing around here and we were talking earlier about some of these kind of the moment of the time these these names that were kind of surfacing up at 
uh, and I was really into David Dupuis, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a guy who I think of often, uh, Rob DeMar. I don't they know. Were, yeah, he was, he was part of Clementine. Yeah. But there was a, these, you know, abstract comic were kind of the you know, best way to describe them. Right. Somewhat narrative. Uh, so I kind of made that work and I spent three years kind of processing through that, looking a lot at early John Curran, um, Sean Landers, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And my personal break here with, with the imagery, with the work was I had picked up a pamphlet of French military outfits. Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of looked like Sergeant Pepper. I thought they were funny. These guys were so dapperly dressed with you know, spats and cover buns and plumes. Uh, and I decided that I wanted to make political art because it was a very political time, obviously post 9-11. Yeah. Uh, you know, the best way I can describe it was that the only Bush I trust is my own right. moment that we had <laughs> as a city. Uh, so I sat down to make political art that talked about what was happening without necessarily addressing what is happening right, right this moment. And, you know, French colonialism seemed, I had the distance of being American to, to kind of use it without fully understanding that it's just as horrendous as our own history. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's the, there was a funniness to these outfits. So I kind of spent uh, a good eight, nine years making these highly narrative, highly detailed paintings, uh, figuration, still lifes. And then around 2011, I, I was just, I couldn't do it. I felt like I needed to, I just needed something new. I wasn't interested in what I had had created. It ran its course. You know, sometimes I think of it like being in a relationship when you know it's just time to go. Yeah. Uh, You don't know what's next, but you know that you have to leave. So I, I did one last painting. I titled it the end. I saw it as this, like the, the last slide in an old movie. One last date. Yeah. The (laughs) end. Yeah. And, uh, and I never went back, you know, but that, with that, body of work did to me did to me (laughs) is in a way I felt like you know I spent like six months after that trying to figure out what to do next and I said everything in that work so I can kind of free myself up to say like this piece here nothing you know just a horizon line water lapping at the shore kind of reset in a way just clear cleared the whole stage if we want to use that word um and just be you know kind of just paint, you know, that's what I want to do. I was, I had, um, I had resource books, reference books, and I would always have a book in my hand trying to paint an animal or paint a uniform, paint a building in, over in Europe or something. So I wanted to be like kind of free from that burden and, uh, and you know, I also joke free from gravity. I wanted to be able to have things kind of float and do things that were not surreal, but you know, supernatural or. And where was your, where was your studio at this time? I, um, my first studio was with Jim Lee down and he graciously let me rent out a corner of his space and it was a lot of fun down in the, uh, Nate, no, what's that? Downtown. Yeah. Which is now all buildings. Right. And, um, which is kind of funny. And then I had a studio, um, up in Greenpoint, mm-hmm. uh, at the very top of Greenpoint, which is amazing. And then, you know, so I kind of have been based in Greenpoint ever since or until I left last year. Right. And you're always, you're, you're never working huge, are you? My first, my first show in the city was, um, 2009, first solo show. Yeah. And that culminated with 
some five foot by eight foot paintings. Okay. And so I did work huge. And that was also when the economy completely hit the shit <laughs> and the gallery closed and I got all those big paintings back. So I kind of swore off. Yeah. It's a lot of storage. I still have them. Yeah. They're in my father-in-law's garage right now. You know, I moved them all the way to LA. Yeah. Cause I couldn't bring myself to unstretch them, roll them up. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I have done big work and, and I feel like given the opportunity, I would do it again, um, with the right imagery. You know? Yeah. Cause there's something nice about the more intimate scale of, of these recent ones, because there, there's a certain quiet or a, a feel to them that I think if they got, well, they could work big. I guess there, there's just something nice about them smaller. I can see this one, the, the empty lakes kind of big, yeah. you know, more like a Rothko, right. Milton Avery kind of vibe. Um, but for like the waves or some of the other ones, I feel like big is just big. Yeah. Which is not interesting to me. Um, and, yeah, but, that, but I think there's a denseness to it. Like I noticed this a couple of years ago when I saw them kind of for the first time in a all white environment, white floors, white walls, white ceiling, that there's this immense denseness to the work that I feel is uniquely New York in a way. And I'm thinking of, you know, kind of the minimalist sculptures of Carl Andre, Richard Serra. There's just this heaviness to how the work is made that, uh, allows them to feel bigger than they really are. Yeah. Which this painting wasn't in, I mean, it says that it was at Monia Row, but remember the show you did in Tribeca? This work wasn't it. Yes, it was. Okay. Yeah. I thought so. Was all in, I should update my website. That was the last show I saw of yours. It, um, what's I'm, I'm Tamar Green. Yeah. Tamar Green. And um, that, yeah, those look good in that space. Yeah. I mean, it was a, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed that opportunity and yeah. it was an um, amazing space and we're actually Tamar and I are going to do a project together next year he's reopening up in London so nice um, pay attention yeah look out for that right. e-blast <laughs> that's cool you get to have the show in Tribeca and then a couple of years later you do London that's uh, that's you know I mean yeah. it's the the evolution is such a thing, you know, it's just like the longer you're in it, the longer you're in it and you just keep making work and keep keeping relationships alive. And when you find people that believe in it, you, you, you do your best to stick with them. Yeah. Well, what's the, uh, what's your engagement with the community during those times? Because, you know, you got your studio, are you just doing like day job? Are you going to see music? You go in other shows? Like what's, you know, what's fueling the outside of your studio? Um, I've always had a day job, so there's been that at various times. It was, you know, two days a week, three days a week, four days a week. Um, and then, you know, this town makes it easy to go see shows and be a part of it in a way. And so, you know, you want to represent your friends and go out. And, uh, this was before even the gram where you have to go out and mandatory photograph that you were there. (laughs) But, uh. So, you know, I've had that relationship to it. I was blessed to be able to do a few residencies during my time here out of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, Always nice to yes. hit the reset button. Yes, incredible. It can, it can drag you down after a while. Um, yeah, and I, you know, one of my greatest prides is I was I did Yato twice. I went back for a second time, and mm-hmm. of course I'd love to go back for a third time. So, uh, you know, just just kind of making the work, you know. And I, and I, 
I've always enjoyed one thing about New York is we were talking about that earlier about how you walk around. And so I did a lot of walking around and I would always just kind of find stuff again, those books for instance, yeah. or, uh, you know, just find these random things in the street and just kind of pick it up and bring it back into the studio and kind of respond to it. Um, which you, um, so what's the, <clears throat> I guess what led to the LA move and then how did that change? You know, your relationship to your immediate environment, which seems to have play a hand on how you come across things and what enters your work in a way. We decided to leave New York City on our own terms. Uh, my wife got into grad school out in Los Angeles for playwriting. And we just, you know, we've had so many friends that you lose your apartment, you lose your studio, and then you're scrambled to find something and you end up somewhere else and you pay too much in a neighborhood you don't want to live. Yeah. And you get miserable and you get beat down. So we just kind of said, let's do it. Let's just go uh, set it up. And then we debated, do we Airbnb our place in case we come back? Um, and we just decided to let it all go. We got you know everything packed up, shipped out, got in the car, took off. And then three days later, our old apartment was basically condemned. Oh, really? Due to a uh, carbon monoxide leak and gas leak. You know, horrifying. Like, we were living there the whole time. And then it got even more crazy because there was uh, the repairs that we've been paying to have done in the building weren't legal. They weren't licensed. <laughs> so everything for the That's last part, 10 years part was, for the course, right? was not you know, up to snuff. Right. Wait, and did you own? We did, did not you? own. You were just renting. We had a crazy landlady who lived in San Diego who was basically an absentee landlady. Yeah. So we could kind of do what we did. We, we organized this couple to move in. We kind of negotiated a small key fee, you know, which was, you know, you know, no, a chunk of change, but not, nothing too terrible. Yeah. And, uh, so we were in Northern California and, the people that used to live in the building that are now in Florida were calling me while I was calling the people that are trying to move into our old place who was trying to call the person down in San Diego. <laughs> and so through all this, it turned out there was a stop work order slapped on the building from around 2007 from a now deceased neighbor that was never fully resolved. So before anything could be done, that had to be cleared. That had to be cleared by the city. So it was Wait, just, and this is like 10 or eight years old. Yeah. I mean, it was, and then the neighbor's dead, you know, the poor guy's passed on. And so, you know, it was just this total, like, thank God we got out. Yeah. And we weren't dealing with like Airbnb and having to return people's money. And so we just uh, decided to go for it. So we spent last summer, we, um, the company we used to move our stuff allowed us to, you know, we had storage in the other end. So we just kind of putted across the country, saw my folks my dad and I drove the car from Chicago to San Francisco and then we just kind of as a family hung out in California until we moved into our new place in September. Um, and so I'm down in Inglewood, Los Angeles, which is kind of a sleepy neighborhood um, in between downtown and the airport. Um, and uh, sorry, cat just did a <laughs> pirouette <though> behind you. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I feel... I feel having one of the things I could say about doing those residencies that I mentioned earlier is that it allows you to have the confidence to not necessarily be dependent on where you are to make your work. Yeah. You know, you get, you get a little more nimble. You get 30 days, you're in this beautiful space and you know, if you use it, you use it. If you don't, you don't. So you just kind of get to work. So I, I feel like I'm at that point with my work where I can just kind of jump in and get crazy. Uh, at first in Los Angeles, I had this romantic idea that I was going to do the outdoor studio 
Edward Oh, Monk. really? Paint outdoors. Yeah, yeah. The, plein know, air. Plain, not even plein air, just paint outdoors. Oh, yeah. You know, still p- make my paintings, right. but do them outdoors. Um, and that was, you quickly realize that's a terrible idea. Not going to happen. Yeah, the paint dries on the palette before it even <laughs> gets on the brush, before it even gets on the canvas. You know, there's shadows going across your painting. Yeah. When there's no shadows, it's brighter than the sun, and you're just like <laughs> squinting and... Not so, ideal. So yeah, so it did. It, it, you know, I I looked around and I found a studio about ten minutes away uh, in Inglewood, and so it's a, uh, it's more of like a, a building of lawyer offices, mm-hmm. and um, and you and me, <laughs> and there's a chalk artist next to me, which I'm still not quite sure. Wait, what, what, that means. what is that? Uh, that's what she said. She's a chalk artist. It's intriguing. Yeah. So so. Um, you have to do a studio visit at some <laughs> point and figure out what's going on there. I think she does it tattoo parlor too an underground tattoo parlor i mean you know she's got the hustle though oh maybe it's the you know the people who do draw on the sidewalk and make it look like photorealistically like something's going down that might be a chalk artist i think so the french the french street uh art movement um but i have a space you know it's it's uh it's like a 12 foot by 12 foot room that was when i got it was all purple Mm -hmm. um and it's, it's just a, you know, it's an office for me to go in and kind of make the work. Yeah. Um, Does it not feel studio-y to you? Do you know what I mean? Do you feel like you're in some other kind of environment, So, but you're just painting there? Uh, it, or yeah. have you have it, you gotten comfortable with it to where it feels? Uh, you know, it feels like a studio. You know, it's just kind of a place where I have the, pro, you know, things in progress. Yeah. And, um, you know, just a place to kind of not have to put everything away. Right. Uh, so it feels good. And I do some, the drawings often occur at home at night. Yeah. So they kind of have that different vibe. Yeah. I, I kind of like working between places and I've set myself up to where I do that now. And there's something nice about it, especially late at night being able, cause I can work in a side room where I can just, you know, everyone else goes to sleep. I can go in there and just pull out some materials and do some small work, which is nice. And you're here, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're a family man. I'm a family man. Yeah. You know, uh, so often when I'm at the studio, I got cats in the cradle going through my head the whole time I'm there. You know, it's like nothing in a way more indulging than that time alone making your work, you know. And my yeah. work takes forever to make. So it's like here I'm painting, you know, the 55th layer of blue streaky water. You know, does the world care type thing? And I have a son at home. I should be watching him grow up. And again, you know, the cat's in the cradle. Right. He grew up just like me. <laughs> so, I mean, that's why it's fun to also work at home for me because it's like yeah. you're, you're there. Even if he's just sleeping in the other room. You feel connected. You're connected. He cries. He wakes up. You yeah. can go kind of go over there and be a part of it. Yeah, that's a good thing. But it, you do work in acrylic. Are you just layering and layering? Is that layers, how it works? Layer, layer, layer. Yeah, Glazing, so, basically. But which it's, is what's acrylic. There is some glazing. So the backgrounds, so often the backgrounds are what's first painted. So the, those giant fades, giant fades, those massive <laughs> 26 inch fades that you see there. Uh, that would be a big head fade if someone got true. a giant fade. <laughs> this one actually kind of looks a little bit like the Fresh Prince. And it does. It's like got the new age, like tilt to it. <laughs> Jazzy Jeff. Um, <laughs> So the backgrounds do have glazing on them, and it's multiple layers of paint. You know, uh, the way I've, I won't give away too many secrets because then, but there, it's, it's multiple layers. Like, so the, so that background could be like six, seven, eight, maybe even 12 
semi-transparent layers of paint that kind of achieve that seamless fade down. Yeah. But then when it comes to like where you see with the water, the waves, those it's less glazing and more like a, like an egg tempera approach where yep. it's Little 30 strokes. or 40 strokes. Yeah. That build up that thickness. And, um, and then I try to, you know, use a variety of colors, of course. And when the work is all done, it gets varnished. And that's when you start to see all those like purples and greens that might be buried, you know, yeah. 15, 20 layers back kind of come through. So it kind of gives it that richness. Little Turner-esque technique, like glazing day when you would come in, like the right. day the show opens or the day before and just glaze it and it comes to life. For me, it's just a wonderful way to kind of say the painting's done. Yeah. I'm not going, I mean, you can, I have, you can remove the glaze or the varnish uh, and go back into it and... I've, I've experimented with that, but for me, it's just like a... But it's acrylic varnish. It's acrylic varnish, yeah. Golden makes a, uh, a you know, a UV filtering varnish. Great products. There's your ad drop for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have those... Remember, they didn't... That's a relatively recent, at least I feel like it's relatively recent that they had all these um, great varieties of varnishes and stuff that you could put over your acrylics. I've been using that varnish for probably like... 14 years now? Well, relatively, so, I guess. I mean, well, Maybe I'm thinking compared to when I was in undergraduate school. Yeah. Although they might have had that stuff. I just they used to have a, um, a varnish that you would cut with turpentine or something, mineral spirits. Remember oh, really? that one? I had a friend that used it, Christian Teal, and he would just like, he called it the syrup on the pancakes. Like when his painting was done, he would just pour it over it. It would just kind of come, but I remember they still make it, but I'm not interested in using any of that type of yeah. toxic stuff. The water-based stuff is nice. Seems somewhat healthier. Right. Yeah. Even if it's not like, like yeah. every once in a while I use acrylic that has the orange X on it. You're, you know what I mean? Like the state of California. Yeah. The state yeah. of California thing. And, and I'm like, well, it's water-based. It can't be that bad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm responsible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I used to, I, when I was in undergraduate school, most people painted with oil. And those were the days when it wasn't turpenoid or it wasn't like mineral spirits. It was turpentine right. like, in like big old buckets, you know, like people would leave it open and just, just off no, yeah, just no ventilation. I was getting massive headaches and woozy all the time. I was like, what's going on with me? You know, I realized it was, it was all that, the fumes from that stuff was. And then, I mean, it's even worse when you actually spread it out. Yeah. It's just got that large surface area. And I was never oil paint. You know, it's obviously so sexy as a medium, but I just couldn't, I'm just not an oil painter, you know? Yeah. I think that's something else that takes time for you to realize, because at least when I was in school, there was, nobody was using acrylic. It was all, like, the history. Real. Yeah, real I'm a art. real painter. Real painter. <laughs> Turpinoid. Turpentine. Right. Now, I think acrylic is, well, imagine what you were doing with oil would take forever. Oh yeah, no, like that absolutely. would take you a decade. Like that painting, <laughs> well, <laughs> or maybe a little less. But I mean, it would take a lot. No, longer. no, exactly, exactly, exactly. Are yeah. you? Uh, and for some reason, this painting that no one can see this, but whatever, they can go on your website and see your your yes. paintings. Um, this painting reminds me a little of like Arthur Dove or like those kind of painters. Are those people you're tapping into or or interested. Mm -hmm interested in them as a result of the way that you're making your paintings and you're like, Oh, those kind of resonate with what I'm doing. Or were you looking at them before and kind of thinking, you know, as you're developing, was it a chicken and egg thing? It, it, I've, 
uh, I'm going to go back. One of the jobs I had when I first came here, I worked for a now closed American art gallery and I worked there for two and a half years. And during what was that, that, it was a, it's an American uh, commercial art, or American gallery, American art gallery called Spanierman. Uh-huh. They were up on 58th street and they sold uh, basically Hudson river school, but they also anything American art. Yeah. So uh, it went all the way up to, um, of course, 20th century, Morrison Hartley, uh, Arthur yeah. Dove, occasional Arthur Dove, not a very good occasional Arthur Dove, but uh, so I've always kind of took pride in the history of American art, um, especially in the 20th century. So, you know, Arthur Dove and then this one, you know, you know, that foghorn painting of his yeah. is always kind of on the mind. And But also this one is, you know, so it's part that it's part Kenneth Nolan's targets, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so I feel like an ode to that. There's um, a little bit of the folk influence, I think, in there. Oh, definitely. You know, I think, and, and the, what this motif, the waves kind of coming up from the bottom came out of, for me, was just a desire to kind of make a, a painting that didn't have water just kind of flat. Like, I wanted to bring the water up. Yeah. And once I did that, my wife was like, oh, it's, you know, Hokusai. And I was like, oh, of course. How could I be so naive? And I actually, you know, pulled out the Hokusai book and looked at it. And I realized that I feel like my work exists in this space, what we think we see. So we think this looks like a Hokusai, but when you do like the Pepsi challenge side by side, you realize that mine is just this like cheap knockoff compared to this beautiful <laughs> detail, the, like just the life in his work. So I feel like when we think of a Hokusai, this is what our brain kind of creates. And what, just like when we think of a wave kind of crashing at the beach, we, we might make up an iconographic image like what I paint or the same thing with the sand and the water. Yeah. And so I feel like the work kind of exists in that space in our mind, this mental space of, of being real and fake at the same time of being natural and artificial kind of being caught in a moment between actions. It's funny. I didn't, again, now that you mention it, I see that someone will come up with that reference, but I just don't, I wouldn't go to Hokusai when I look at this and I'm a huge Japanese print fan. But I think what the thing about those is they're so, they're, there's so much movement, and yours feel very static, right? No, in a no, really no, interesting yeah. way. I mean, it's it, almost like you're freezing time, but they feel, um, I don't want to say new agey, but they feel kind of like well, trippy in a way. Night wave. Yeah. <laughs> what was that guy's name? Um, do you know what T. I mean? Yeah, Robert yeah. T. Yeah, yeah. No, they definitely. You know, they they have that. One of the things I haven't been saying it so much recently, but I was saying. I see the work as kind of being spiritual, a lowercase s. Yeah. You know, I'm not necessarily a spiritual man, but I, I feel like once you kind of stop and think about where we are on this planet, on the solar system, in this universe, is uh, I don't even know how you wake up in the morning because it's such, such a mind-boggling thought. So with this one piece in particular, the Narrows, you know, we the viewer are on the planet Earth or a planet, the Sun is directly in front of us and the very top there's the moon so all three of those things have to be kind of in a perfect alignment for this to exist to say nothing of the waves kind of crashing like they are creating that shape so i, I kind of feel like there's like that cosmic awareness of our place yeah you know that's just incredible and, and I, it and comes across in a, in a kind of an unconscious way i think the right. thing the ephemeral nature of those of ukiyo-e in japanese prints is that I think the sublimation of nature, nature always feels bigger than the people in them. 
when they're landscapes, right? right? But they're really about, I mean, it means pictures of this world, like the floating world, but ukiyo-e really is about like day-to-day views, you know what I mean? And they feel so static and kind of in the day that they were made. They feel dated and they feel of that time, and I think that's what they were trying to capture, right. views of their day-to-day life. These feel like of a different time or not current. They feel almost like psychological or mental portraits in a way. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you know, it's a, um, it's, you know, this, you know, kind of take that attitude back about our relationship to, uh, to the greater solar system and ourselves, you know, every day of every hour of every month of every year that this planet's been around, waves have been crashing. These things go on, you know, before us, they're going to go on after us. Um, there's just kind of this, uh, timeless quality to him and that's what I was I was really kind of striving for the work for the last few years to find these what I called kind of like universal imagery but it's also very personal to me so the moon the sun stars these are things that we all kind of relate to waves um, the seagull you know the seagull yeah. to me is like such a generic bird that's everywhere but you know um, <laughs> generic bird it's, it's a, true though just like it's like the, the pigeon of the sea or something yeah. I don't know you know so they're just around. They're just there. They're, they're like about, a mockingbird, which yeah. is fascinating. They're, and there's they're, no real, I mean, there's, you know, I don't really know. You know. The raven has its own cultural weight to it. And, you know, they're beautiful. I'd love to do a painting of a crow, like a big black shape in the sky. But, you know, I, I kind of try to strive. So this is actually, this, this one, you know, kind of is a piece of driftwood I found on the street. But upon further review, after I was done with the painting, I think it was a varnished root. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I just kind of picked it up, kicked around the studio for years, and then one day I decided to kind of, you know, just just paint it floating above the water. Yeah. Was there doubt about it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to a degree. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was like I was trying to do a moment. Who I forget what the like on meaning all those books. Oh know? yeah. So I was trying to do like it's like my ode to that. Oh, the painting's called On Doubt. If people don't see that, they'll be like, why is he asking if he was doubting the painting? (laughs) No, so, I mean, you know, it's a floating object, and so there's, like, kind of, you know, I think this is one of those things where the title does lead to maybe a better understanding of the piece. Yeah. And uh, totally side question, what do you, are you listening to music when you make these? Are you listening to NPR or, or Silence? It's like yeah. what's going on around it in the process. When I was here in New York, I listened to a lot of sports radio in particular, a lot of uh, talk radio. I prefer talk, you know. Yeah. Now I kind of went back to um, music here, you know, back in the East Coast. So it's more, or in the West Coast, it seems music seems to be more a part of it. So, I, you know, I just like, you know, NPR, NPR and talk radio, uh, sports radio were kind of a big foundation to Are it. Are you a big sports guy? Uh, Baseball, I like. I listen to a lot of baseball. I'm in, in um, on the radio. I yeah. got the MLB app. Another product drop. Um, it just you know it allows you to kind of follow a story without necessarily being involved. Yeah, it's so. great to. Uh, I feel like it's one of the better sports to paint to. Yeah, I spent a long time after nine eleven in the twenty four hour news cycle, and then when I had to purge from that you know, vicious cycle, I went to, you know, Yankee games and I would just have them on in the background. The pace of them and what? the relaxing nature of it just worked, I think. Especially with John Sterling. I know. 
Um, I got the MLB app, and which that allowed you to do was listen to all the teams. Yeah. And so I started following uh, the Padres of all teams. Like I, I'd find the radio announcers that I liked, just the way they called the game. Oh, who's that guy? Who does uh, the Ted Leitner. Pretty good, right? Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Such a great voice, great storyteller. And then my friend Rob Matthews. And I, we got the app as well to listen to those last few years of Vince Scully out in Dodger oh, Stadium yeah. just to kind of be a part of that amazing legacy that he had. And his broadcasts were epic to listen to. I've, I mean, I've only heard short clips, but I love the... Oh, so good. The, I mean, he seems like a guy that you know he was you know, steeped in tradition. He did it for so long that he kind of earned the right at, towards the end to just be so relaxed or I don't know you know he was the last one of the last people that he did it by himself there was no color guy yeah, no yeah. play by play it was just him and then you know I, I listened to the one uh, he did on when the game he called on uh, D-Day and it was emotional he was just talking about his friends baseball players that were over there like you know he knew these people it wasn't just like you know uh, empty history it was like personal to him and at the whole time he's calling a baseball game that's yeah. when you've been around at a gig for a long time when you're like, remember that D-Day broadcast yeah. I did? Remember 1942? <laughs> did he have a little more energy in his voice then? Because you know how in his later years, obviously, right. he's a little more like laid I mean, back. I think that was who he always was. That you was know, his vibe. Yeah, he let the game come to him. I, th- I think that's what somebody says. You know, let the game come to you. Don't try to... Right. And maybe that's the same attitude one can have when they make paintings. Let the paintings come to you. Yeah, don't hustle it. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let it. That's good advice. Um, did you ever listen to uh, Bird Flight when you were here? You know that Charlie Parker show on Columbia. Yes. Uh, what's the, the guy's name? Phil Shaft. Phil Shaft. Yeah, I get his yeah. emails every week. Um, that was I do. Uh, that was an incredible. I mean, just like Vin Scully, just this depth of history of of, of actually seeing it and being there is yeah. uh, so inspirational. Although the show does kind of sometimes. Repeat, go, go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's verbose, very verbose. Yeah, but um, it's amazing because when you hear yeah. early broadcasts of his, he's a little more like young and spunky, and yeah. then he gets confidence. He goes on. Uh, I like, like when he does the uh, shout outs. Oh yeah, shout out. out! Yeah, yeah. Max Roach, <laughs> shout out to Max Roach. <laughs> Max is probably listening to the right. show right now. <laughs> But that guy's pretty amazing. Dude, incredible. incredible. The wealth of knowledge. It's like Ankawada. It's like every day with that. Can every you imagine? Day. Every, every day. day. And it's not, it's a, and it's a new show. It's not, you know, somehow he manages to say the same thing but not repeat himself. Yeah. Um, well, he's just digging and digging. Yeah. And then I'm always just fascinated when he comes across, you know, a trumpet player or a drum player where they don't know anything about that individual's life before, like, you know, he showed up in New York in 1930. We don't know, you know, where he is from. It's just, you know, that's not that long ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just amazing to me that, you know, the knowledge that he has. Yeah. And that oh, yeah. I think he also pined for a day when you could have that mystique. Nowadays, everything's so easily. <laughs> Your credit score is right. 600. <laughs> <laughs> no. It was yeah. funny. We were, I was with my friends, Deb and Josh, last night, and we were somehow talking about our old landline phone numbers that we had when we lived in New York back in the day. So my friend Josh Googled his old landline. He grew up in the city, so he Googled his landline number from the 60s. Whoa. And 
it linked to his dad's name. Oh, really? On the World Wide Web, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's the Wayback Machine. And that's the Wayback Machine. <laughs> and the phone hasn't been used in 20 years. Yeah. Know? But it's still out there that you can, he's like, why is my dad's name on the web with this phone number? Landlines. Remember yeah. those? Remember the day, I remember the day that I made the decision. And I told my wife, I was like, we don't need this phone. Because, you know, we were just getting like junk calls all the time. And there was, back then it was kind of like, yeah, but what if an emergency happens? Yeah. And yeah. then 9-11 happened and no one could call because everyone was using the phone. So it was like, it doesn't yeah. matter. Like if things really go down. I had a fax machine in my apartment for a while when I first came here. Just for the sonic bliss? Of, uh, yeah. Well, no, you had to fire <laughs> off a resume or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, you're not going to pay like a dollar. To run down somewhere. Yeah. So you just like. Oh, man. Old days. So, um, have you, are you a TV guy? Do you watch a lot of stuff? Uh, to a degree. Have you, you know, cut, have you cut the cord? Uh, I, we don't have a TV, but we have the Netflix. Yeah. The Netflix. That always makes you sound older than you are. The, ne- the Netflix. Um, my, my parent, I talked to them the other day and they said, uh, what's the Hulu? The Hulu. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the same thing. Yeah, I'm on the put, same. Put the before it if you want to sound antiquated. <laughs> Like completely out of touch. So, so you got the Netflix. Got the Netflix. And then... You got uh, the internet. Got the internet, yes. The internet. <laughs> the World Wide Web. Uh, and so I've been watching... Um, this is kind of embarrassing, but I've, I've been making my way through all the TV shows I used to watch when I was like in junior high. So um, made my way through the entire Next Generation catalog. Oh, nice. Now I'm working on the Deep Space Nine. Um, We're the same generation, right? I think so. We're roughly the same I'm age. I'm 76. 74, yeah, yeah, so we're right there. So, no. but was it like Three's Company and Brady Bunch important to you? No, that was right. I, I kind of entered, when I moved to Michigan, I entered a cultural vacuum for a brief moment of like seven years. Well, it sounds so, like you just went outside all the time. Exactly. It, we didn't have TV. I mean, yeah. it was like, we had like an antenna that was roughly the size of a bus in their attic, <laughs> and we could get like one and a half channels right you know and so i it was just too much just didn't have you know tv wasn't really or the radio i you know when i was in minneapolis i was kind of cued into like the current music trends yeah especially in minnesota minneapolis was a magical time in the 80s for music um but then when i came to michigan it was like i listened to oldies radio it was like the only radio station i could get was like oldies yeah so i kind of got myself versed in music of the 60s and the 70s there was no college radio it was, you know, the college radio had a, you know, broadcast radius of like one and a half miles from the college oh, okay. itself. Yeah, you know? yeah. But it was a good, uh, W, uh, Western Michigan has a very good college radio station. Yeah. But it was, you couldn't, you know, when, when you were up in Kalamazoo, you could find it, but we were about 45 minutes south of there. So, so do you, when you think to your youth, do you identify as from a certain place or was it just too much moving around to where you didn't feel like you had roots? Cause like, you're not a Boston guy cause you were too young, right? right. To get out there. I mean, I used to say the vast Midwest, where, was, where I was from. Um, a, mis- a Midwesterner. Midwestern, you know, Minnesota, Michigan, Ohio. Uh, but having lived in New York for 17 years, I think I just kind of became a New Yorker. Yeah. Um, or did you bring that out to L.A.? You know, I, I kind of, when I, my attitude when I left is, you know, everybody asks, are you a New Yorker? And I think you become a New Yorker when you're, how do I say, when you're not. I mean, I have to look it up, but somehow it's like, it's who you are, you know? Yeah. It becomes who you are. You just, you've always been a New Yorker. 
Um, and then you go out to LA, uh, which we relocated out there to, like I said, last year. Um, it's just such a different vibe, man. Was it hard to adapt? No, because it's, you know, I, I, I would think, you know, it just, maybe it's like the perfect metaphor. Um, you know, uh, it's so much easier and laid back and slower paced that I feel like if you had that and you came to New York, it would be harder to adapt. Yeah. Easier to slow down and speed Yeah, up. exactly. And then, you know, you have your standards and you like, somebody does something like you, you cool with that. And you're just like, well, that's the way you guys do it here. I would never do it that way back East, but then you're, you know, you're conscious of this whole East coast, West coast. You don't want to be that guy. Yeah. You don't want to be that guy, but yeah. inevitably you are that guy. Right. Cause everybody asks you like, what's that? What's New York like? Yeah. Do you, <laughs> they would like the first few, I had a, picked up a part-time job and the first few times I worked there they're like you guys you have traffic in New York you're like yeah dude everybody has traffic yeah it's just different you know we don't have a 16 lane highway yeah you know it's it's a it's a one-way street that's backed up for five blocks right it doesn't run our life yeah like we don't you know and and I'm always amazed if I go in from here Williamsburg into the city it's if there's traffic, it's not that bad. Yeah, it's like no. ten minutes or yeah, something. on the bridge. It's the bridge. I'm not sitting in the highway for two hours waiting to get to where I'm going. This is different. Yeah. Different sensibility. No, no, totally. You know, so you can slow it. You've slowed it down. A bit. You you have to slow it down. You know, because it's just um, everybody runs late because of the traffic, and it's you know. But I've also found that uh, the studio visits I've had in L.A. Uh, everybody's on time. Oh, really? Yeah, you know. And they go longer, like you, it's more relaxed. It's, I think it's, you know, yeah, they're more relaxed, more informed. Um, you know, it's, it's been, you know, I kind of set up my little shop. I had my deadlines kind of planned out. Uh, so I had, you know, reason for me to be there to kind of make in the work. Uh, and then in the last few months is, you know, just been having, you know, it's, it's such a different, uh, kind of vibe than New York here. Like I've had more, in a way, I've had more studio visits with gallerists and collectors and other artists in two months in L.A. than I did in like a whole year being here. And um, do you did you make a lot of fast friends with like artists and, so, and the community there? Because there's a, this, you know, feeling that there and if you don't go to art school there, it's a lot harder to crack into it. And I think that's a little like outdated. There's a is a huge pipeline from Chicago to L.A., and so then I met some nice people that that were on that, and then it, it turned out I'd like showed with this like this girl, I, this gal that I met. Like I was in a show with her the next week here at Spring Break Art Fair, and you're just like, what? Yeah. That's and then I met another guy, and he was like, oh, my wife's an artist, so you know, I looked into it, and it turned out I'd showed with her like two years ago in Arkansas. It's just like what the <laughs> random, fuck? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like how 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 big and small at the same time, right? Um, but it's, you know, what I promised myself to do is whenever New York artists who I knew in particular had a show out in LA that I would have to go to their opening Yeah, because I would at least know one person. It's the connecting thread in a way. And then, you know, having kind of gone to openings for years here, you know, it's like if you're lucky, you can speak to the artist for like two minutes, three minutes, you know, you don't want to monopolize their time because there's 16,000 people there. In LA, you go to an opening, there's 20 to 40 people there. Right. The gallerist is very proud that it was a huge turnout. Yeah. And you're just like, what? You know, I can like 
do arm circles. Yeah. And then you end up talking a lot of times to the artist for like 25 minutes because they don't know anybody else there because yeah. they're from out of town. And um, so it's been wonderful. That's been a great uh, way for me to reconnect with people back here on the East Coast and in, in the Midwest uh, that show out there. And then you kind of meet people through them and yeah. everybody's super friendly. And, you know, now we sound like we're really old, but the the smartphone allows you to, <laughs> you know, quickly get in touch, stay in touch right. and kind of develop relationships in a way that, you know, foster longer term relationships. Yeah. Um, and the different landscape out there, is it, is it feeding into your work at all? It's, it's incredible. I love it. It's, uh, you, I, you have this thing out there. I'm not, I haven't seen it much here, but I've heard about it. It's called the sun. Yeah, I texted my wife when I got <laughs> off the train yesterday. I said, the sun's broken out here. It is. Um, it's, it took me six months to realize that, the, and this sounds really new age, but the sun out there is literally an extension of your soul. It, like it becomes a part of who you are. And how Why? Because it's just always there? It's almost like it warms you. Yeah. It, every day is it's there and it warms you. And, um, you know, I'm still kind of, I come out of the house with like three or four layers on and the guy next to me comes out with, one day the guy came out with no shirt on at all. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm freezing. And he's just like walking around in the shorts and you're like, what, this guy. So that's how you can kind of tell the real like Californian from the non-Californian. Yeah. By how many layers they have on. Uh, but there's a relationship to the landscape there because there's these hills, because sometimes you're up high and you can see on a non-smoggy day, you can see for 20, 30, you know, maybe 10, 10 miles in a direction. Um, and the, the sun, like you said, the light. Uh, and I'm, I've actually been really fascinated with the architecture uh, and how these houses are kind of constructed in this like near symmetrical, asymmetrical play. Um, and then just kind of, you just get warmed, man. Yeah, it's not that new agey because if you think about it, the sun really does go into you. It gives you vitamin K or D or whatever it is. Right. And then it, you know, you feel different after being in the sun for a few hours. So I always I, feel more healthy. Like as soon as it gets warm enough out here, I'm outside for now, at least an hour or two just to soak up some sun. You know, No, in, in, in LA, you, you have that every day just by, you know, driving, getting to your car, you know, just being uh, out, you know, so. And then there's just such a vibrant, the colors are so vibrant. And the plant life is out of this world. And Crazy. The beach, the beach, the beach is nice. The sand kind of exfoliates your life. Yeah. And you it's, know. you know, it's easy to get to. You can, you know, it's a 10 minute drive to, to the beach. Have you jaunted minutes. over to Hawaii yet? Have you been there? I was, we were there this summer. Yeah. Uh, Isn't it great? It's beautiful. I've, I love Hawaii. Yeah. That's the best place. And we went to the, we've been, we always go to the, I don't know which island you go to. We've gone to the Big Island, Big Kauai, yeah. Kauai, yeah. 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 Unfortunately, I saw Kauai just got ravaged by rain. Yeah, flooding. So a little respect to those people going yeah. through that. Um, but yeah, no, it's an amazing, uh, yeah. It's a great place. Great place. Yeah. So you're doing well, are you, you're enjoying, are you, are you ever going out to see live music out there? Were you ever a big live music person? I, I was, but I'd always see the same like two bands. Yeah, who that? came that? through. Um, Lamb Chop from Nashville. Oh, wow. Remember no. that? What was that guy's name? Kurt Wagner. Yeah, that voice. Yeah. Nothing like it. Amazing. Great amazing. band. It's such I a great... saw Lamb Chop play with Smog trying to, in Pittsburgh, I think, once. And uh, it was just great. 
Yeah, I think I saw them like maybe like 12 times when I lived here. That's a deep cut. Yeah, I don't know deep. if a lot of people know who Lamb Chop is. Um, they're getting, I mean, they're getting there. I mean, Are they, but, they're still doing it? Yeah, no, they just, um, I don't know, the new album they came out with last year called Flautus. Oh, I didn't even, I'm uh, check it out. off the radar. I yeah, they're, it's totally different. You know, they're, I think perhaps the most cringe worthy music description is alt country. There you go. And I think of any band that was labeled that the first thing you want to do is get as far away from that type of label as possible. So this album, he kind of went completely different direction with the band and it makes sense. They've had like, you know, 12 albums. Different direction is like less more country. Inst- yeah. More almost like, um, uh, techno in a way. Oh really? Yeah. Spoken word techno. Like, uh, but it's, it's, you know, it's just such a smart, uh, writer of lyrics. Did um, you used to like Will Oldham? Yeah, Body, yeah, Bonnie Prince and yeah, Palace um, Brothers. Yeah, exactly. You know, some of those songs. You know, there's always a test. Uh, you know, shout out when the, those songs just become part of your life, even yeah. when you stop listening to the music. So, Gulf Shores. You know, every now and then, just kind of runs through my mind. Yeah, that Palace EP that he, this is early on. I used to drive across the country with friends, and we listened to that in like you know Utah or Montana. Perfect music for that landscape. Yeah camping out in the middle of the night and stuff like that so wait lamb chop was one what was the other one uh the clientele oh i don't know them or the clientele i, mean, I, I know the the name of them but i don't know their music well there were <laughs> is it indie rock it, it i guess <clears throat> the history was they were billed as the next Radiohead when their first album came out which is you know means that you're going to not be yeah, the that's next Radiohead. that's shooting high yeah or they they weren't they didn't build themselves like no that, i but mean that was like the, the, the buzz and it just kind of like you know just <laughs> was not the next Radiohead. but uh yeah they're like a english um kind of you know a 60s redux yeah of, of that you know um and i you know saw them several times you know include i think my favorite show i saw them was over at the uh, maxwell's and hobo oh yeah which was just is that place still around? Sadly, no. Yeah, I wouldn't think. No, it was such you know such a beautiful place to see a show, and it was yeah. also like the size of a shoebox. You I remember know, seeing Yellow Tango there, bad way back. Dude, that was that was like you know when when in the future we can time travel. Yeah, people are going to time back. travel to that show. Yeah, because that was that's their home turf, man. Yeah, what a treat to see them. And I saw Yellow Tango multiple times. So yeah, my the band I used to be in way back, we opened up for them oh, nice. in New Haven one of the best shows just not because it was a good show because it was it was outdoors and it was cold so it was hard to play but but just opening for them was great when we flew out of lax this summer i was uh at the bar next to ira oh really yeah it's like i don't want to be the dude that's like hey man you're really cool yeah what do you say i was like i tried to go like with the you know the deep cut because i saw what i saw lamb chop a couple of years ago and the opening act was something called Charlie Horse uh-huh. and so uh, it was at uh, Moulin Rouge over in the, in yeah. the village and so nobody showed up for Charlie Horse <laughs> and so when Charlie Horse came on the stage I was like oh that's the tall guy from Yola Tanga and then I was like well that's the other guy from Yola Tanga and I was like that's Yola Tanga yeah. so it turned out Charlie Horse was the Yola Tanga cover band oh really that was Yola Tanga <laughs> So they just they would just go under another name. Yeah, because they didn't want everybody to come out. Because they're actually Lamb Chop and Yolting are pretty tight. So yeah. Um, so I, it was like an amazing forty-five minute set of Yolotanga in a half-packed, you know, venue. You should have walked up to him and been like, you know, you look like the guy in Charlie Horse. 
what's well, when i saw him at lax i was like yo you know i was trying to be cool like yo man i know i know your history like yeah, i saw yeah. i saw you guys as Charlie horse and he's like the fuck you talking about <laughs> i was like oh you know it was lamb chop you said like lamb chop you open for lamb chop he's like oh yeah you know he this, didn't remember this, it this, oh, hell no you they dudes played like you know sixteen thousand shows yeah but. to you charlie horse was a big thing yeah. for them that was a one night name yeah, that they no. threw out of their mind exactly so he was just like all right dude i was like all right <laughs> and then I got back and then I was like dude talk to my wife I was like no right, just talk to Ira and he's like oh is he over there sitting with that lady I was like George is here <laughs> but um, no it, it's I love what I love about Yola Tanga and Lamb Chop for me is they have that large depth of recordings of records studio records Yeah. and when both of those bands perform those songs live they they take the songs to a new place so yeah. it's like you you know what they're gonna play you know that's gonna be cherry chopstick but how they go about it and how they change it for that performance and, and they change it you know multiple times for different performances I find extraordinarily exciting yeah they have some improvisation going on there yeah. which you wouldn't expect in a band that sounds kind of like them right no exactly and then there's like another you know so for a while I would do a lot of um, live concerts on YouTube which is a great yeah nerd alert um but there was this amazing one in portland that yolatanga did it and they opened the show with night falls on hoboken which is this like 20 minutes they mental yeah and it's like just such a great like you know the whole arena's jazzed for you guys to perform you come out and you play this beautiful you know slow jam yeah but they're able to kind of you know extend that into the next song and the, the structure of how they do it is to me is fascinating and as as an artist as a painter that uses the same motif sometimes multiple different paintings i, I relate to that in a way yeah i have i recall them playing didn't they do a sun ross cover yeah. i think they did like rocket number nine or somewhere i mean they just got such a catalog you yeah know? i was like That's they've amazing. done it all they've They're, done it all you wouldn't expect a band like that to do a sun rock cover which is pretty great yeah and it's the respect of the craft that you have that you're you can just do something like that pull it up and and transfer and back to our idea of how maybe these influences are buried within the work now yeah you you can pay respect to it and make it your own at the same time right i like doing that time travel and thinking about like where our work was at that time and then listening to certain like i've been listening to a lot of uh two things like super chunk which was a huge band for me and in a developmental pyramid like pavement was big back then right 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 bands like that and then a lot of drum and bass for some reason just getting into that and it reminds me of like certain periods of my development which i find exciting as i'm working now and trying to tweak things you know you're always i feel like you're always trying to reconnect with those feet like moments where you break into something new like a new development which other other people might not be able to see it it might be minuscule but it's a feeling that you get but every painting we do has uh hundreds of minuscule decisions in it that yeah. result in it, you know, that aren't necessarily apparent, but build up the vibe and the energy around it. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> it's like a, a key part of like the practice, you know, but that's his, that's the beauty of, of having been making this work for so long that it, you know, it becomes, it's just a part of the work itself. You know, the history is a part of what you're making today, even though it's a brand new piece. That is the beautiful part. The part that's not beautiful is how sore my hand is all the time. <laughs> Carball tunnel, I think. Oh yeah, no, oh, it sucks, man. From doing all those collages and little uh, pieces and stuff, you know. I've, yeah, no, it's that's the not fun part about getting old. No, true. And then your knees start to ache. Do you paint standing up? I do. Yeah, yeah. 
So, but I try to exercise all the time. So I feel like I play a lot of soccer. Right. But these days, it's it does get I get sore. <laughs> no, totally. I you know just like ache. Um, but I feel like my time in the studio is now more efficient than ever before. I uh, totally. Well, yeah, especially with the kid. You have a kid. Yeah. Is that the know. thing people don't tell you? No, you, there's no fucking around. No. Like, you got three you hours. You the clock. You're yeah. in. You got three. You're not. <laughs> not surfing the yeah, web. or not reading about Huffington Post update, <laughs> but you're just like, all right. And then you're like, all right. Out. It's like a window of opportunity that you have to seize. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and then even when you do have like eight hours, the rare chance we have like a full day, then you, you're pretty much done by three hours. You're like, all right. Yeah. You're like, wait, I, I don't I, know. Isn't this when I'm supposed to leave yeah, now? Exactly. Yeah. My, ment- my mental clock is clicked off. And um, so that's, you know, having the kid, uh, which is amazing journey on its own has increased my efficiency in the studio. I agree. Yeah. I think you have to. Yeah. It's a, you know, otherwise you'd have like one painting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So so you just like, uh, and then, you know, part of me also kind of likes it when, you know, I'm making excuses for me, but you know, when you're done, when I'm finished with the painting and something kind of like claws at me a little bit about it, but then you're like, well, maybe that's the energy of the painting. Yeah. Like if I made the perfect painting, it wouldn't be that interesting. But See, that's, I, I totally relate to that. And I think that is a parallel to parenting because there's so much stuff that you have to deal with that you can't sweat everything. Right. Like you become more open and willing to let things happen, not out of like a generous spirit, just out of like fatigue. <laughs> right. Or, or as you know, they're not dead. <laughs> right. That's basically your first goal. Yeah. Right. And, um, and then everything after that's gravy. No, it's yeah. You just kind of you you learn to prioritize. Yeah, where you don't you never have to prioritize before. You know, and I think it, for me, it's kind of worked this way at the studio in that way too. You know, where it's just like, um, you know, sometimes I I do these varnishes and like little hairs get into it from the studio, and you know, part of me was like if I was a real tight ass, I'd like try to get those out. Yeah. And, but now I'm the other day I found myself saying like, you know, Matt, it's like it's like yeast. Right, you, you let the the spores and the air kind of yeah, get yeah. into it, and it gives it like a new energy to the bread. So, that's my attitude towards <laughs> these like random pieces of dust in the final varnish. Like it's like yeast, you know. It's, I'm just letting it kind of grow on its own, right? Um, and I just you know don't want to get too tied up on that because you just start. You can't. Yeah, it's just like you unravel back to you would have nothing. Right. Nothing. It's kind of like when the when your kid's little and they spit up on your shirt and you're like, you know what? I'm going to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just put another shirt on top. I don't need to change. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, tell, tell the listeners about your upcoming show. This is great because a lot of times I feel like I'm catching people on the tail end, but we're, 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 your show's about to open. The show is at Shrine Gallery with Scott down in the Lower East Side on uh, 191 Henry Street. It's a two artist show called Night Waves. Uh, with uh, Casey Cook, a wonderful uh, painter who does these kind of um, figurative, abstract, uh, that's the word I want to use, abstract paintings. So yeah. kind of a blend between the two and they're big. And then I'm going to have my little uh, little canvases. I have uh, three works that I made here in New York before I left. And then the back room is going to be about eight uh, canvases that have been made this year. So you can kind of be fun to see the two side by side, uh, how, how the 
the shift in uh, location has affected them. Yeah. And the show is up through May 20th. Nice. So, and it opens uh, this week, April 20th. Sounds good. So this might, I don't know when exactly this yeah. will drop, but it'll be open when people it are is, listening. Yes, exactly. And is there any other stuff that they should, I mean, you're online, you do social. I'm on the social, I'm on the social media, on the Instagram. Some people only, I found out recently that some people only know you by your past. I think you changed your Instagram I did, handle. I did. The Desert Sea Captain. Yeah, some I people I put it back on my bio. Yeah, I don't, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, I've spent, um, years branding this like abstract notion of the desert sea captain and then one day i was like what the hell am i doing <laughs> like why why would i not brand myself so right right um so i changed i did the old switch over to my legal name um matthew f fisher on the instagram but you can also type in desert sea captain i kept that in my bio it comes nice. up that way well thanks for coming over Thank i look you. forward to seeing the show yeah yeah absolutely i can't wait i appreciate being here and uh shooting the shoot yeah yeah it was good to talk cheers thanks sound and vision is recorded produced and edited by myself brian alfred you can follow Sound and Vision on Instagram at Sound and Vision Podcast. And you can find the podcast, more information and images I take from the podcasts at soundandvisionpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a donation of any amount on the webpage. The intro music and introduction was lended by Michael Lovett of the band Nazca Lines. You can catch Michael moonlighting in the band Metronomy. The artist introduction music and outro music was provided by Lullatone. For more information about myself and my artwork, check out my website, paintchanger.com, or find my work at Miles McHenry Gallery in New York City, Maho Kubota Gallery in Tokyo, Hezi Cohen Gallery in Tel Aviv, and Studio La Chita Gallery in Verona. Thank you for listening.